no helicopters have been procured for me to go to golf course. Thank you. I've never said he wasn't a great politician. I'm just saying he's a golf <laughs> How'd you play out there today? Uh, well, I found the conditions challenging. Mostly, because there's no grass on the golf course. But, there never has been. I'm thinking about the swag bag. I hope the swag bag. When you got three crevices on the green, your course is trash. What's happening, folks? Welcome back. Beltway Golfer, episode 21, Alex Dixon here. May have noticed, took two or three weeks off since the last published episode. You know, we figured, knocked out 20 episodes in about five months since early June. Wanted to regroup a little bit, take in the Fall Masters, which was terrific before we put our heads down and, and lined up a, a bunch more guests and uh, knocked out another 20. So here we are. To kick us off for uh, this next round of 20 uh, is Michael Williams of Golf WRX. Michael is a really interesting guy. He's a native Washingtonian. He's the host of his own show, The 19th Hole, uh, which has been a part of the Golf WRX, WRX for some time. I was reminded during our conversation that it actually started on 106.7 WJFK. He has had numerous roles in the golf industry despite coming to the game later in life. One of the most interesting is that um, in D.C. he was with golf course specialists for about seven years. Um, golf course specialists being the concessionaire for decades prior to National Links Trust who ran Langston, East Potomac, and Rock Creek. So he's got some interesting perspective uh, as far as all that's concerned. Um, also just uh, a lot of our conversation was about his, um, his history and, and his upbringing in, in, in DC, which is relevant, especially as it pertains to why I originally reached out to him to be a part of the show, which was really in response to uh, something he wrote earlier this year in 2020. During all of the um, social unrest and demonstrations going on around uh, social injustice and police brutality in the wake of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, Michael wrote uh, a letter, an open letter to the golf industry. And his letter was really in response to maybe the what he viewed as um, an unprepared response by PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan, and he wrote a lengthy letter with some suggestions, some proposals, some ideas on what the golf industry can do better to promote diversity, especially at the highest levels of the game where most people acknowledge that it's been uh, is an ongoing issue. Um, it's pretty um, homogenous, from, certainly from a race standpoint in the, at the highest levels of the sport. And, you know, I really wanted to sit down with Michael and hear about the reaction to his letter, the feedback he got, and just dive a little deeper into some of his thoughts and ideas on, on where the state of the game is um, uh, in respect to um, the topics in the letter that he wrote. So I, I'm going to share the links to his articles um, and including the letter that he posted on Golf WRX. Um, but I thought it was a, a, an interesting conversation to learn more about uh, his perspective and just his life in golf. 
so here it is, episode 21, Beltway Golfer, Michael Williams. Okay, Michael Williams, how are you? Thanks for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure, man. I'm good. Uh, you know, sitting here uh, in D.C. with you and, you know, just trying to stay on the right side of the flowers this year, you know, and survive uh, everything that's going on. And, you know, everything's 2021. It's all gravy once we get to that one. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm excited to kind of have our first real conversation. Uh, you and I've been a fan of your work for a while. Uh, we only first met recently at the um, soon to be broadcasted uh, long drive challenge that happened downtown in the mall, uh, which I'm excited to see in the Golf Channel. But I, I was excited to meet you and, and thank you for agreeing to come on and being uh, being a part of the Beltway Golfer. Well, you know, it's really my pleasure. I, um, I'm always a big fan of anybody who's doing anything to promote golf in D.C. Um, you know, I, I grew up in D.C. I'm from D.C., born and raised. Um, haven't always lived here. I've lived overseas, lived in a lot of places, different places. And, you know, hopefully, well, not hopefully, I definitely did pick up a lot of wonderful experiences and a lot of friends along the way. But golf really changed the trajectory of my life uh, in a very, very positive way. So anything that I can do to, to tell that story in the hopes that um, it does the same thing for someone else, I I'm happy to participate in that. Absolutely. So um, where, where you are, because we're going to go into kind of the history of, of of you and, and how you got into golf and, and kind of your journey through golf. Cause you've had, uh, you've had some interesting roles uh, to lead you where, where, where you are, where you are now, which is you host a, a, is a weekly podcast on golf WRX called the 19th hole. That's correct. But you also host some, some political shows as well. Is it voice of America? Did I get that right? That's true. I uh, host uh, issues in the news. It's the flagship English language politics show on voice of America. The show is a, uh, I, I moderate it. It's a, uh, we have two panelists on the show who are um, very uh, talented and esteemed journalists from uh, newspapers and magazines that you know, news agencies from around the world who are Washington, D.C. correspondents. Uh, it's uh, a half an hour show. We go really fast and we go deep uh, on the three, four, maybe five uh, big subjects of the week. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very excited by the fact that it's listened to by close to 20 million people uh, around the world every week. So um, it's mostly outward facing, though, with Voice of America. So um, very often I'll get a, uh, a Zoom or a, a Lyft driver or Uber driver says, sir, I know you. I know that voice, though. Right, right. <laughs> I recognize that voice. Are you with Voice of America? <laughs> like, 20, yeah. 20 million people. I mean, that, those, are, that's, those are legit numbers. So um, and that would explain why it, it was hard to schedule this, you because, schedule this with you recently <laughs> because you also cover politics. And, you know, there's some. There's been some politics, you know, with the, with the election and, and everything going on. So a busy time of year for you. It, it has been a, a crazy time of year. And I also serve as a Washington correspondent for a, uh, uh, one of the news networks in um, Australia. Uh, so we've been basically going every night, you know, covering uh, from two weeks before to, to today, you know, sort of nonstop with the, uh, with the elections with Australia. Love doing the work for those guys. It's an awesome network with really wonderful and talented people. The only problem is that live shots go on at two o'clock to three o'clock in the morning. So, yeah. So heading into the studio around two o'clock on Capitol Hill, um, yeah, it's sort of uh, sort of a uh, uh, jacks around with your with the sleep cycle. But I, uh, I, I can imagine that's, that's you know I'll sleep on January twenty first. That's fine. There you go. Um, 
So um, in, in this conversation, there, there's a lot I want to I want to cover and, and learn about you. Um, a, a big piece that I know you caught a lot of attention this year um, with everything going on in, in, in 2020, not just COVID and pandemic uh, re, uh, related, but um, the, the, the social um, upheaval that, that happened this summer um, and, yeah. and, and still it still is happening a bit. And you wrote an open letter to golf, uh, which I want to talk about. Um, and, sure. and, and, and what has happened uh, since you wrote that letter, some of the other interviews and conversations you've had. Um, but we will get to that. I, I, I prefer to start kind of at the beginning of, of, of how you got into golf and your kind of your roots here in, in D.C. Um, and we'll kind of start backwards and, and we'll and we'll get to the present. Um, uh, let's start there. Like, so, so you, you're, you're a native of D.C. Yep, native of D.C., grew up in northwest D.C. Uh, a lot of people who are uh, around here will know, like, right to go to Thurner and Third and Longfellow, just down the street from George Avenue. Going Missouri Avenue is our backyard, that big highway going back and forth. Um, you know, um, it was uh, great growing up in D.C. at that time. I think it was just a cool place. You know, it was during the time, and not to be all old granddad on you, but, you know, just, you could go out and play, you know, in the summertime. You just open the door, go out and play with your friends and a ball, and you come back in when it gets dark. And it, it, it was just a wonderful place to grow up. And I've always had a, even though I grew up here, I've always had a love and a reference for Washington, reverence for, for Washington, D.C. Um, it, it still gives me chills, you know, to see the Capitol dome in a certain light or to every time I come in from the airport and come across Memorial Bridge and you see the, uh, uh, the Lincoln Memorial. And now knowing that, you know, when you come and you make that turn from the airport, on one end of that bridge is Arlington Cemetery. And now both of my parents are in Arlington Cemetery. And you have the, the Lincoln Memorial on the other side. Those are two parents who came from segregated South Carolina to fulfill the American dream. And you have the Lincoln Memorial on the other side. And I would say that that guy made it possible for those guys. And, you know, those are the types of things you, you think about when you're in D.C. You know, it, it, it can... It, it really affects me. I take it all seriously. So it's kind of an, an honor, you know, to be participating in the democratic process through, through journalism. In any case, yeah. Wow. I, I, I would imagine that there's not too many folks that can say that that are, that are natives of this city that still live in this city, and and, and both of their parents are, are at Arlington National Cemetery. Um, that, that's I, I would imagine that's unusual. Uh, it's um it's special. Uh, my flag that my father's flag my father served and uh this flag is right over there you know on, on the other side you know i have um, you know as you can see some mementos around here but that one means a lot um but uh you know it was my dad and he would take us around in dc and growing up in dc would you know drive us around and take us down to haynes point and i didn't even know there were golf courses down at haynes point until i was in my 20s <laughs> we used to go down there just to hang around and be by the water and catch a breeze and, you know, play kickball and stuff. You know, that, that was, that was what Haynes point was in East Potomac park. I didn't even know there were golf courses down there, but uh, you know, it was uh, a very nice to say growing up in DC. Um, I went to Sidwell friends school. Some people know that when I was actually the first African-American male to go K through 12 at Sidwell. Um, I came in the year that Sidwell integrated and um, yeah, those are, it, it was a very small, a wonderful environment, especially, through kindergarten and middle school, uh, there were, I, I had a graduating class of 84, and um, of that class, 23 of us had been together since kindergarten. <laughs> There's wow. still 
like, you know, like brothers and sisters. Now we can get together on Zoom and Facebook and that sort of thing. So it's always nice to have those connections. Um, that, that's pretty incredible. So first, first African-American man to, to, to go K-12 at Sidwell Friends. Folks, most folks around here are very familiar with the Sidwell Friends. I know I, I used to play basketball in their gyms and some of the summer leagues and that sort of thing. But, but, na- but nationally, um, if, if people hadn't heard of it already, they certainly did when Sasha and Malia attended. Yeah, yeah, there were there there were other, you know, that, and that was a thing. You know, you grew up with these kids, and I, I didn't know any better. You know, we didn't. The, the Quaker education was also so much about um, not having the identity from the name or from the face or anything, or even from the status. You know, so I, I, for me, you know, you'd be playing next to Dan Rather's kid or Walter Cronkite's godson or this guy, that guy, and I didn't even know who they were. You know, my some other people would tell me who they were, and I was like, okay, this is just some bunch of kids that I beat. You know, in races and on tests, I don't care. <laughs> We're all just good friends, and uh, we we grew up together. But I'll tell you this one story about how that sort of got an inkling to it. Um, a, a buddy of mine who lived um, up on the corner, and um, his his mom was um, a, a, a domestic servant. She was a housekeeper, and um, he came uh, out to play one day, and he had a new baseball glove. He said, "Hey, check out my new baseball glove." And it's like, yeah, I looked at it. And it's like, well, it's not quite new. It's like, yeah, but it's almost brand new. And it was. It was a beautiful baseball glove. It was better than anything any of us had, you know. Sure. And I looked at it. It was a little bit too big for him. And I looked at the back of the hand, and there was a name written across the back of it. And uh, I was like, you know, is this? Is I don't want to say guy's name. I say, do you know this guy? And he's like, yeah. And I recognize it as the name of a guy who went to school with me, and who was three years ahead of me in school. So that I realized, you know, my situation was a little different because. No, my best friend's mom is actually working in this guy's house, and oh she, the son had given her the glove to give to her son, which ended up on my block. Oh, wow. So, and these always say I grew up on. It's sort of an east side, west side thing with me, you know, from one side of the park where I lived, and the other side of Rock Creek Park, you know, where um, where I went to school. So it was sort of a, a, a dual life here yeah. in DC. Um, but it also gave me a grounding that I appreciate how people are. People are different. Everybody's worthwhile. Everybody's story. I just, I just got a love of, of people of all kinds. You know, I didn't grow up in any one particular situation. I grew up in a lot of different situations. So I think that served me, served me well then, and it serves me well now. And being open to people, no matter what their story is, no matter where they come from. Yeah, but that must have given you a, a particularly unique perspective, especially because we're talking late seventies. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm and- old. And <laughs> I, I only know that I saw your LinkedIn that you graduate. You're you're a Terp uh, class of '84, so I took a, I took a guess. Um, but but back then, even more so. I mean, one of the I don't know what the right adjective, but uh, unfortunate things about Washington D.C. Is, is that it's 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 a fairly segregated city, or, or used to be even more so. And yeah. certainly, you know, typically, you know, west of the park was one thing, east of the park was another. Um, yeah. So I, I imagine. Living on one side and going to school on the other it certainly gave you a unique perspective. Yeah, there's a movie in there somewhere, you know, so that uh, you know about living and growing up in the two different worlds. But as I say, um, you know, it was um, it was an, it, it was edifying for me, you know, because you grew up not being intimidated by anyone. You know, you just like you, you on, on my own merits. You know, I was in that school on my own merits. I excelled in that school on my own merits. I excelled at the playground down the street from me too. You know, so it's like everywhere you go, it's just you, you know, you're not, you're not worried about how any, I've never worried about what everybody, anybody thinks of me. It's just me. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to just judge you in the same way, but not judge you, just accept you in the same way. Right, right, right. Um, so after Sidwell Friends, I, I touched on it for a second, you went to College Park. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're a Terrapin. 
Yeah, I'm a Turk, went there, um, thought I was going to be uh, trying to play basketball. I, I, so I started in, in 80, and uh, the class of 80 incoming, uh, University of Maryland uh, College Park was preseason ranked number one in the country. They had Albert King, Buck Williams, uh, Jeff Baxter. Um, it was just an absolutely loaded team. And I went out for <laughs> walk-on tryouts, and I... <laughs> I made it to the last cut because I took a uh, I took a charge from Ernie Graham. If you remember, big Ernie Graham, six seven point guard, about two hundred thirty pounds out of Dunbar, and um, he was a rising junior that year. And I say rising because he left my his boot print right here in my chest that's probably still there if I take off this sweater. And Lefty Giselle, who was the coach at the time, said that boy got guts, you know. So I made it to the I made it to the last cut, but. Um, the funny thing is, between my freshman and sophomore year, I grew four and a half inches. So I didn't go back out for ball, but I started playing a bunch of ball. And it was my thought that maybe I could be John Starks, you know, and go like to the D League and make my way up and ride the bus down there. Um, but I ended up taking another path uh, and, and and not doing that thing. And I played ball overseas for a little while, but I, did, I, I went overseas. Yeah, yeah. I, I took another route. So you clearly can play. I mean, making making the final cut at a, at a at a preseason number one ranked team in the country, and 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 an old lefty, you know, almost giving you a spot. I mean, you could clearly play. I was I was Rudy. Okay, believe me, <laughs> I, I was <laughs> I was the guy. I'm sure that they were fast breaking. Lefty was like, hey, let's see if you're gonna take that charge again. You know, it was just sure. like it was like that. I did get to be a pretty good ball player, and my younger brother is really the ball player. Okay. in the family that guy he 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 had all america's last prototype talent you know the things the tumblers on the block have to work just right for that to happen for you but uh, he's the guy who went to five star um you know he 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 was really a good player but i made myself well, I, as good a player as i could be and i figured that you know, if, I, if i really wanted to i could have gone ahead and done that but i got an offer to go to hong kong from a very close friend a mentor of mine um who also passed away, and I still miss him. Um, he asked me at the time he was doing something in Hong Kong and foreign exchange banking. And uh, I was like doing this entrepreneur thing in DC and buying and selling cars. He says, well, how about coming to Hong Kong? Said, well, fine, I'll go to Hong Kong. I thought I was gonna go for a year, ended up staying overseas for 12 years oh. and living in Hong Kong for five years, uh, Vienna for five years and London for two years. And again, you, everybody wants, needs to travel. If there is a, a charity that I want to do is to give kids passports when they're 10 and let them earn through grades and good works, air miles, so that they can travel. Everyone needs to go out of here, get out of here and see the world because it changes your perspective, your attitude. There's a fullness to your human experience when you travel like that. So I, I'm so grateful that that happened for me. And still no golf in this story. Right. I was, I was going to say, I was like, A, I couldn't agree more. Uh, B, unfortunately, most people aren't, aren't getting that, that experience this year in 2020 with such little travel no. happening. No. Um, no. And, and C, golf is a great way to do that. Um, you know, start, starting, to bring, starting to bring golf into this conversation. Um, Absolutely. You know, to, 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 to achieve the travel and, and see the world and see unique places. Um, but one of the reasons golf hasn't been in the conversation yet is uh, I've heard on, on a couple of your shows you talk about you, you came to the sport fairly late in life. Yeah, I was uh, 39 turning 40 when I came to the sport. I'd come back from overseas and um, had a very tough year in the family. My older brother passed away. Uh, my mom got sick. My dad got sick. It seemed like I lost cousins. It was just a crazy year, year 2000. And um, I needed a job where I had some flexibility. 
the thing. So I took a job at a golf magazine that needed an assistant editor. So I said, you know, pretty much communications is my thing. I can write about, you know, whatever. So I took the job working there, and after a couple of months of having one of my clients be the three golf courses down in D.C., golf course specialists, they were taking advertising in this golf magazine. You probably remember Pros and Hackers. Remember that magazine? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, so I was uh, associate editor for, uh, uh, associate uh, publisher for uh, Pros and Hackers way oh, back wow. in the day. And uh, our one of our clients was the golf courses at uh, at DC. So Kim Thomas is the managing director there. It's still like a sister to me. I would take a bullet for her. She was uh, sort of running the operation. After she would ask me for some marketing tips every now and then. And after like the third one, I says, "Well, look, I'll give you this one, but after this, I got to charge you." So she says, "Okay," which led to me becoming the the marketing manager uh, at that place, which allowed me some flexibility. I still needed to take care of family. Uh, for a little while but that's really how i got into the game practically was not even ha i wasn't playing golf at that time i just took the job as the marketing and communications director uh for golf course specialists so so some of this i think will be interesting to a lot of our listeners uh, first, mm -hmm. first off pros and hackers so i i remember pros and hackers i i mean I, I remember it i don't remember it super well i remember reading it i remember seeing it seeing it around uh you know it, it would be on the, the you know, the, the coffee table at the golf course or, you know, or on the, yeah, on the stand yeah. when you walked in, um, yeah. what, like what years, like what years did that exist? And, and that, that primarily covered golf in the mid Atlantic, right? Yeah, it was golf in the middle Atlantic and God, for, um, forgive me that I can't, I'll probably could pull one of, uh, from out of here someplace and get the first publishing date. Uh, I worked there for a couple of years. Okay. Um, and I believe that the publication mm -hmm. ran for somewhere between seven, seven years, something like that. Maybe but this is, this more. is, this is the nineties. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, it, it ran, it started in the 90s and went into the, uh, right. into the, the, the mid 2000s, I think. And so, in there. and so, but what came first, you getting into golf or you starting to work at Pros and Hackers? Uh, me starting to work at Pros and Hackers. Uh, so that's kind of what led, it, led to everything else. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had actually been on a golf course a couple of times, you know, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a corporate tournament or something like that. But I, I still had played two 18 hole rounds in my whole life. Interesting. You know, up until then. And so pro, pros and hackers, they must have, I don't know if competed is the right word, but at the time, Washington Golf Monthly was a, was a publication as well. And they were not affiliated, right? No, they were not affiliated. They were definitely competition. And uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 the Washington Golf Monthly slash Golf Styles um, was definitely the, the, the leading magazine by a long way. But pros and hackers sought to be sort of the scrappy young player on the on, on the on the field and try to cover stories in a different way. And I remember my first interview, my first golf interview was uh, with Rich Lerner. I found out somehow that Rich Lerner was coming into town. And um, it was my very first media piece was writing about uh, Rich Lerner. And he gave me an interview. Uh, we met me, well, he actually didn't quite come to town. We met someplace around Havard of Grace or something like that. Okay. And we did the interview. And uh, I remember I compared him to Joe DiMaggio because he kind of makes it look easy. You know, he's got that silky smooth kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, he saw the story and he said, Michael, you should really come down here. We could use a guy like you down here in Florida. And um, yeah, I was still, you know, sort of taking care of family. I had stuff to do in Washington, D.C. And um, that path didn't take, but it, it always told me that was a first hint that, you know, maybe you can do something, you know, in this golf thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that's interesting. Um, so, so you trans over, over to start working for golf course specialists. So for folks that maybe know that, or are trying to remember where, where, how to place that golf course specialist was the concessionaire that, that ran Langston, East Potomac and Rock Creek, the three public courses in DC for 
I don't even know, 20, 30, maybe something years? I'm going to say off the top of my head, it was, um, it's going to be 40 plus years. 40 plus years. It's 40 plus years, definitely 40 plus years. And, and now they just, and now that tra- that's trans- transitioned over to National Links Trust as of just a couple yeah, months ago. Yeah, um, yeah, just recently. So that so that's interesting. So so you worked for them for how long? I was there for seven years uh, in the position of uh, director of marketing, communications, and uh, uh, say public relations, and also lobbying, um, government relations, because we had to work with uh, the National Park Service and also with the Department of Interior. Um, so anything that was communications related, anything that involved everything from our newsletter to the signage in the in the grill. Um, everything from meeting with the uh, deputy secretary of the interior to, you know, actually, you know, unplugging a toilet. We did it all. I mean, yeah. you just, when you're, in a, when you're in a situation like that, you have a small committed group of people and uh, the mission is not to make a bunch of money. The, the, the mission for those golf courses has always been to provide affordable, accessible golf to, to, the, to the residents of Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area. And, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, offering rounds that are at the time it was like thirty dollars for eighteen in a cart. I mean, you're 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 operating on a shoestring. You know, yeah. so you you'd learn how to do a little bit of everything. And um, those were seventy-hour days that were. I mean, those are still my family. You know, the people right. that I work with there at all three golf courses. We went through a lot together. We suffered together. Um, we suffered. I mean, really through joys, weddings, literally weddings, funerals, personal tragedies. Um, you know, I almost literally gave my life you know, for, for, for that, for those, for those golf courses. So um, I, I got very emotional, you know, when they changed hands, because uh, really? that was, that was my place. Uh, that, that's, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly understandable. Um, so speaking of that, um, you know, what, what do you, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you have a relationship with, with the new, uh, with National Links Trust? Yeah, yeah. I spoke to the guys, I spoke to, to Will and a bunch of the folks who were down there. Um, uh, Tim's also on the board. Um, I, I, I congratulate them because one of the things that I tried to do for six of the seven years that I was at uh, the DC golf courses was try to put together um, a public private partnership and convince the leadership within the National Park Service and the Department of Interior that that was actually legal. <laughs> so, you know, we failed. <laughs> there was something that we could try to do, but there was no one who would say, yes, that's okay to do. So, However it happened, they got someone to say yes to something that was a solid no before. Um, and you need to have a public-private partnership like that to make it work if you're going to try to do the types of things that they want to do, expanding the golf courses. I mean, I have binders of things that have roughly the same plan, you know, yeah. for, for the things to do and the ways to do them. But you have to have someone to shake hands with. And sure. um, I think they're to be congratulated for finding someone to shake hands with down there and get these things done. It's going to be a long process. I mean, we're talking, you know, 10 years you know, before yeah. everything that they're planning gets done. And then once you get done, it's sort of like the Washington Cathedral. You know, once you get finished with it, the first thing that starts the next day is the restoration project, right? Sure, right. So um, that, that's what it's going to be with the golf courses. But to have someone who has a 50-year lease that allows you to make improvements, um, these are the nuts and bolts things that people don't see behind the scene that are absolutely necessary to make something like this work. So, yeah, I have a a relationship with them, um, maybe working with them, maybe reporting on them. But either way, I plan to make sure that that mission um, and vision are are attained by hook or by crook. Yeah, um, especially 
um, you know, one of the things we're going to get to in this conversation, you know, uh, referring back to kind of your, your open letter to golf and, and, um, and how that pertains to Langston and the importance of, of Langston and where it sits in um, the history of African-Americans and the sport of golf um, and, and making sure that, you know, that, that lineage and, and that is respected and honored going forward for, for decades to come. I'm sure I would I would have to imagine is uh, is very high on your radar. Uh, definitely. Yeah, I went over to Langston the last day of the uh, golf course specialist contract. Uh, I was writing a story for the USGA about um, the course turnover and how the USGA was going to be involved in the um, uh, maintenance and setting up the maintenance program uh, for the current so the current current situation and then the, uh, the uh, renovations going forward, restorations going forward, and it was. Um, it was really an emotional thing. Again, I have to say, because you, the word that pops to mind is stewardship. You know, when you're responsible for something that has that much history, you know, you're looking and you can point out to the USGI and say, hey, that's the tree that, um, you know, Joe Lewis used to hit, you know, the Joe Lewis tree, because he used to come out here and hit that tree every single time. Sure. Um, when you saw a, a putting green where you got Muhammad Ali right behind me, people, a lot of people don't know Muhammad Ali, when he was Cassius Clay, came up to that golf course and just pulled up, didn't play golf, and pulled up to the, the putting green right up front. Of course, there's a crowd that gathered around him. It's like, champ, champ, champ. And he's like, what are you doing? You're playing golf? Yeah, champ, you're playing golf. He's like, let me try this thing. And he they, somebody puts down a ball. He's like, what are we supposed to do? So just hit it right there, champ. Just hit it right there. Pulls out a putter, rolls in a 30-foot putt. First putt he did, rolls in a 30-foot putt. Place goes nuts. And, you know, got back in his Cadillac and said, okay, I guess I, guess I can play golf too. <laughs> you know, and off wow. he goes. You know, these are the stories. Then you have yeah. Teddy Rhodes, who taught Lee Elder, who, yeah. you know, who taught Charlie Sifford. Both sure. of those guys taught Lee Elder. You have the, the, the history of African-American golf is so richly wound into that and into that neighborhood. And although I grew up in Northwest, I was born about a five wood away from uh, the back fence of hole number seven over there on at, Bladensburg at, Road. At, at D.C. General? At Langston. Uh, actually, right there. We grew up right there on West Virginia Avenue. Okay. On West oh, wow. Virginia Avenue. Um, so. that, that's why I had not heard that, that story about Cassius Clay. Um, yeah. and, and I had, um, earlier on this show, I sat down with, uh, Ernie Andrews, uh, the, the, the pro down at, Big uh, Ernie. Yeah. yeah, who's, who's been there forever. And he, Absolutely. and he, he shared some stories and it's ironic. He didn't share that story, but he shared the story about another champ, Mike Tyson coming by and, and having some wings. He didn't play golf, but he had some wings and, and, <laughs> and, and, and loved it. Which yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure there's um, just a ton of stories um, that, you know, only really exist in, and, and can be brought to life through conversations like this. Yeah. Um, so that's, that, that's interesting. So, so stick, sticking with Langston for a second uh, on one of your, I, I don't remember which one, cause I've listened to a, a, um, a bunch of your uh, 19th hole shows um, in tandem, especially over the last few days, just kind of prepping for this, for this conversation. But on one of them, you had talked about, how um, your time there, you had reached out to the PGA um, a number of times about maybe trying to do some kind of, of, of partnership or some kind of benefit specifically for Howard University, yeah. which, which is now happening. Uh, and, and, and as everyone, most people are well aware through with Steph Curry and, and, and reju rejuvenating their golf program there. Um, can, you, can you elaborate on, 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 on what you were referring to there? Well, it had been on our radar 
to support golf at Howard for quite some time. And it, you know, it wasn't necessarily my idea. I think the management had, had that idea. And when I took over the job, that was one of the tasks to try to bring it to fruition. So, okay. you know, the, the credit goes to them, you know, to, uh, you know, guys like, you know, again, Bob Rock, who was the managing part or the, uh, the majority owner at that time, Kim Thomas, Jimmy Garvin, who was the manager at Langs at those times. Those guys were very committed to doing everything they could in the community and just, we gave away so much golf. Sometimes it felt like we were giving away as much golf to organizations, the first tee, the high schools, you know, colleges. We we're giving away as much as we sold. But that was all good because that was part of the mission, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we, on several occasions, said, hey, look, let's work on getting a Howard golf team. Let's get that together because it's an elite university and it should have the golf team. And we'll have the facilities. This can be your home course. This can be where you play. This can be where you practice. All these things. And like every deal, you hear me say this all the time, you probably get tired of me saying it, but for any deal to work, you have to have two hands shaking. You have to have someone to shake hands with. And sure. we just couldn't, on a consistent basis, get enough parties together to supply the money, the support, the PR, all those things that need to happen. You have, it's like a golf game, you know, you got three out of four things working and you shoot a 90. But one of the days, you know, if the putter works, you know, and you're two under par. So, what happened with the Howard thing now is, you know, you had this um, this entity with all this gravity called Seth Curry, who brings people to the to table, you know, yeah. and they don't want to leave until they make it work. So um, again, kudos to the making it work, and uh, I, you know, whatever I can do to support it, I'm happy to do. Is it as great as it is? Is it is it uh, surprising or, or, or maybe I don't know, frustrating is the right word that that it took uh, a celebrity from a different sport to make that happen? No, it's not surprising. Um, I mean, the money makes these things work, right? I mean, you can have all of the fuel around you want to, but you know that money, the money and the impetus, and maybe even the celebrity, you know, is a is a spark. Sure. Uh, you know, we we know what makes these things happen by and large, and um, it's difficult things to make things happen in DC. You know, DC. There's so many people that get involved, so many jurisdictions, so many people who have to say yes, and so many people. Who, if even one of them says no, then it's a done deal. You know, yeah. just forget about it. You know, try again next year or next decade. So uh, I am not bitter at all that it didn't happen on my watch. I'm glad that it happened. Yeah, no, and and it's exciting. It's it really is. I think a lot of people are really excited Absolutely. for for what uh, what will come of that, and just that Howard who's going to have a golf team again, and got Sam Perrier in, uh, who, who I haven't met yet, but I I want right. to I, I want to chat with, and uh, it seems like he really knows what he's doing, and um, so that's that, all of that's really exciting. Absolutely. So, so you spent seven years working there. Um, yeah. And then, so after that time, did, you know, at what point did you transition to, I don't know, in front of the camera or front of the microphone, you know, being really a part of, uh, of golf media, as opposed to your experience as a publisher at Prozen Hackers? Um, well, it was uh, during the time uh, I was at uh, golf course specialist and managing the golf courses that I started doing some radio and television. Again, communications, has been my bailiwick. And even when I was overseas, you know, I did some, some TV work there. I did a bunch of voiceover work. I was the voice of Ford Motors and uh, all of Southeast Asia. So whenever you saw an English language Ford commercial, you know, it would be my voice going, the new Ford Tailstar, you know, something <laughs> like that. So it was, uh, I've always been in, very comfortable in front of a microphone and a camera and that sort of thing. So um, there were two things that sort of pushed that along. One thing was, uh, one thing was, uh, uh, Dave Lucas, my good friend Dave Lucas sure. over at Capital Golf Weekly, yeah. uh, asked me to come on to do a couple of spots with him. 
Um, and then he asked me to be sort of a regular contributor. And then he asked me to be kind of a co-host. So I sort of grew into that role. And Dave, again, you'll, I keep saying he's like a brother to me. But that guy is like a brother to me, okay? Is he, he, still, is like, they, is he still hosting that show? No, the show, uh, I think, went off the air, I'm going to say, three years ago. Whenever okay. whenever Sinclair took it over, it wasn't much longer after that that it, that it went away, um, which is sad because that was one of those things that really wove the fabric of um, uh, wove, through, wove through the fabric, I should say, of Washington, D.C. golf. Everybody sure. loved Dave Lucas. Everybody knew that theme song, the smooth jazz theme song comes on, yeah. plays about six times over the course of the weekend. And, 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 for, and for folks that aren't familiar with it, this was on, this was on News Channel 8. It was, right. a, it was a weekly weekly show for, for years and years and years, right? I, I'd say I, I venture 20 years. Yeah. Uh, it couldn't be much less than that. But um, I mean, Dave was just effortless. And people didn't even understand. He was literally like the, the duck on the water. He's gliding across the water. But this guy would be covering, you know, like bombs going off in a rock, you know, flip off his mic, run upstairs to the other studio, sit behind the mic and just do this. Hey, welcome to another edition of Capital Golf Weekly. I'm Dave Lucas. It's like, how did you do that, bro? He's like, I learned a lot from Dave. I learned a lot about composure. I learned a lot about preparation. Um, I learned a lot about how to book and be on time for things, how to make it happen week after week after week, no matter what, because you said you would. That's why you do it, because you said you would. Mm -hmm. um, I learned so much from that guy doing that show. And so your time on that show, is that when you really started to get afforded opportunities to travel in golf and kind of expand your network outside of the DC area? No, that's what it came after I left golf course specialist. So, um, so that whole story is, um, again, I, I um, was working with golf course specialists uh, for the seven years. And um, it, these were really, you know, we do routinely, you know, 50, 60, hour weeks. And then sometimes we were doing an RFP at 70, 80 hour weeks and that sort of thing. And um, there was one week where by accident, you may remember this, um, our uh, su head superintendent, a great guy, accidentally uh, reached for the fertilizer bottle and instead reached for the Roundup bottle. And um, I can tell you one thing for the Monsanto people, Roundup works. Okay. Because he, um, in thinking we were fertilizing courses out of our 72 holes we ran or something, I think 54 of them got sprayed with Roundup. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So people were like picking up big patches of grass. Now, this happened just after we'd had the first Play Golf America Day with 2,000 people on our golf course down at East Potomac. And I saw some browning going on. I thought, well, maybe it's just hot. <laughs> but a few okay. days later, we started picking up big patches of grass. Now, normally, grass dying on a golf course is not a big deal. Somehow... The local news co uh, coverage got a hold of it. So now we have news trucks down there. It's like live from six. Hey, I'm down here at East Potomac Golf Course where the courses have been nuked. <laughs> and they're holding up big patches of grass. We've had the AP pick it up for one news cycle. And like my greatest accomplishment in PR is killing a story on AP because they had a slight uh, irregularity in it. And so they pulled it. And that almost never <laughs> happens. That's my greatest well, achievement. Well done. Well done. Did the, did the courses have to close for a while because of that? Um, no, we kept them open. We shipped in sod from Michigan. We cut oh, yeah. prices. We let people play for free at some time. But we were staying, I mean, I was up 24 hours a day for probably three straight weeks. Um, the reason I tell the story is because I was in front of the media all the time. And again, I learned about being accurate, being relentless, um, being on point, how to negotiate things with the media. 
what I would do if I was on the other side. That sort of prepared me um, for doing that. And kind of the reason that I left golf course specialists, one of, one of the reasons was that, um, well, during that episode, um, I woke up one morning and um, it felt a little bit tired. And um, uh, someone called me and I could hear him talking. He was asking me something on a Sunday morning. So a reporter asked me about what's the update on the golf courses. And it's like, dude, just call me tomorrow. Okay, here's a short, call me tomorrow. Guy calls me back again and I pick up and I'm going, hello? And he's going, hello? I hang up, says, I guess we had a bad connection. He calls again, I go, hello, hello? He's going, hello. I realized that I can hear him, but he can't hear me because I've completely lost the ability to speak. I was having a stroke. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I had completely lost the ability to speak. And then I started feeling the weakness on the right side. And that, that's the only way that I knew because that guy called. Oh and um, because I'd had some history with that sort of thing with my mm -hmm. mother and father, I um, sat down, told myself I need to calm myself down, took a bet that it was a blockage instead of a bleeder and went in the bathroom and swallowed six aspirin. Um, my son, who was, uh, I guess, 10 at the time, I woke him up and managed to squeak out and go hospital. Mm. And um, yeah, it was a recovery period um, from, from that one. Obviously I got back uh, by ability to, to speak and, you know, you know thank God, uh, you know, any differences, as my doctor already, already, my doctor always says, like any, any differences in your abilities, only you know it, okay? We right. can't see it, but uh, yeah. there's still some things that, that I see. But because of that, I said, it's, let, me, let me try to do some things that I, that I think I wanna do for the rest of my life. Right. And um, I, I, I left, and that's when I got into well, the journalism more, more full oh, wow. time. Wow. Well, that 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 is scary, but uh, obviously glad. I mean, obviously a full recovery. So I mean, and and how, and how many years ago is this? Uh, that was uh, going on eleven years ago. Now. Eleven years. Uh, wow. Um, well, um, glad glad that it obviously wasn't more serious than it was. But that yeah, that is. That's really scary. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it's something because you're sitting there in the hospital and, you know, your son's sitting beside you and, you know, uh, you, you, you know, I, I was just thinking to myself, you know, I, I, I couldn't talk, you know, off and off for, for most of the night. I, I couldn't make a sound. Yeah. Um, my whole speech center, I mean, you know, the doctor shows me the MRI. It's like, yep, that's your speech center right there. Yeah. Uh, that was affected. And um, uh, I'm thinking, you know, what if I can't talk? What do I do if I can't communicate? Because that's kind of my thing. You know, right. do I learn, do I take up carpentry? You know, am I a puppeteer now? You know, what, what, what do I, what do I do? Right. Um, I worked my way back because I always tell somebody, it's like, you know, those games where you have the word magnets on your refrigerator and you make sentences and that sort of thing. That's sort of been me with communication. I told people, it's like, if I had a, a refrigerator door that's five miles wide, I have a sentence prepared for anything. You know, that's my vocabulary. And it's like somebody drove a pickup truck right down the middle of it and just scattered, you know, for a long time I had to reach for words that, the day after, I remember they got up and like four doctors came in my room and they were testing me on things. What's your name, Michael Williams? Where are you, Georgetown Hospital? Um, you know, what day is it? You know, August, whatever. What time is it? Looked at the clock and it's like 7.30 and they all just looked up like this. Like, oh, I'm sorry, it's three to 10. I lost the ability to tell time. Wow. Couldn't look at a clock and tell time. Yeah. Um, got that came back. It's, right. it's, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it was great, but it made me, it, it, it helped me to say that uh, here, here's let me get onto the things that um, that that I can do better and participate in um, in a way where I can be because I was oh, okay, I was good you know at the at the golf course management thing 
I always felt like in journalism, that's where I can be world class. I can be as good as anybody who does it. So um, and that's what sort of pushed me into that. Well, yeah, and, and you're proving that these days. Um, <laughs> uh, so let, let, let's, fast, let's fast forward that a bit. So now you, when did you hook up with Golf WRX and launch what you're doing today, which is uh, hosting the 19th hole? Right. So um, I started off with uh, sort of golf travel, right? Well, let's see. I got my first radio show with um, the old WMET, which was called Sticks and Stones. And I would have um, lots of people on the show, but I would have government people. It was about, I wanted to do something like what you're doing. It's kind of an early version of what you're doing, Beltway Golfer. We have politicians and all sorts of people. We also, it was the first year that they had women on the big break. And so we got the big break women on the show right after they rotated off the show, we would be yeah. their first interview. Um, then I got an opportunity to work with, um, let's see, I ran Playboy Golf for a couple of years, which was an experience because I got to go to the Playboy Mansion twice and um, drink tequila shots with uh, Hugh Hefner's wife and with Gronk. And, you know, again, that's something for the book. Uh, what, was, is, what does that even entail? What was Playboy Golf? What did they do? Was this articles or events? Like, I don't yeah, Playboy Golf was a series. It was like the Playboy Golf Scramble. They would go to like 13, 15 different cities across the U.S. and hold these scrambles that you would enter. And the first, the, the team that finished in first and second get invited to a regional thing. And then those winners get to go invited to Los Angeles for the national finals where you would play uh, two rounds of golf at a great golf course. If you remember, if you're an Entourage fan, the place where the turtle met Tom Brady, that's the course where you played. I remember um, that. I don't, I don't remember what course it was, but. I can't remember what's top of my head is Pacific something. Is it Pacific yeah. Palisades? But it was okay. that golf course. Okay. And um, you got to go to the Playboy Mansion during that week. It's a week-long thing. You got to go to the Playboy Mansion twice. So you get to go to the Playboy Mansion for a pool party on and Thursday. That's, the, that's the big payoff of getting people to enter the tournament <laughs> series. Is, is, is that it's, not, it's like the World Series of Poker, but you get to go to the, you know, I, get to go to the Playboy Mansion. I admit it. It didn't suck. I mean, it was – I mean, people think it was like sort of like a Playboy Mansion. It was like a real body or Taji or something like that. It was basically like a bunch of girls in cheerleader outfits, you know. Yeah. And you know, it was about the golfers. It was, it was a – you know, it was a, a – it was to raise money. It was to make, to make money, that thing. These guys, are outside group ran it. But I, I worked for them for a while just, you know, because I had some promotional skills and to get into golf. And then I got the show on um, WJFK. That was my first version of the 19th hole. Okay. And uh, I did for, for four years, uh, almost five, on the on WJFK. We had some great shows. And you know, we had Jack Nicholas, Gary play at Leisure. I mean, everybody, everybody was, who you would expect. WJFK was 106.7 before the, the fan bought it? Or, it's it, became, the fan. or, yeah. or became the fan? It, it was the or, fan. Oh, it was the fan. Yep. Okay. Got it. Yep. okay. It was the fan. Yep. It was back when they were still over in uh, the Laurel Buoy area you know, before okay. we moved sure. downtown. And I moved downtown with them. So I was sort of straddled that, that right. era. Uh, we were on Saturday mornings, and that's when I really got my first chance to do uh, broadcast radio to a large audience. Okay. And when WJFK said they want to concentrate more on the Redskins and use that hour you know, in the morning for something else, then I went to uh, Golf WRX and said, hey, I got this show, I got this format, I got these guests, I got these contacts. Would you like to put this on the show and really expand the audience? And that was four years ago. So four years, and uh, as of today, 144 episodes later, um, we are rocking and rolling. I think we get something like 40,000 listens um, every every week and wow. um, sometimes more, you know, when you have uh, major weeks, that sort of thing. But we've had everybody from Jack Nicholas uh, to Bernard Langer to um, we had the, the, the ambassador to Ireland, who's a friend of mine. You know, I met him in Ireland before he came to the U.S. Um, I, like to have, I like to have people 
who think about golf my way, that golf is not just the game. It's not just what the tour is doing. Golf is not just a lifestyle. It can be a life. You can meet so many wonderful people and go so many wonderful places. And that's what I try to show people um, on the 19th hole. It's, it's not just about the golfers. It's about you and how you connect to golf. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Absolutely. No, I, I, it's, a, it's a really enjoyable show. And, you know, and uh, that, that's really that's really impressive. I mean, uh, I, I am not um, in the stratosphere of 40,000 listeners per show. So that, that's that's a, a very impressive. Um, I, I would imagine that a, a particular episode earlier this year um, got a significant significantly more than that, um, which was uh, a week or two after um the, the killing of George Floyd and you made uh, you wrote a letter uh, titled an open letter to the golf industry, I believe. Is that, is that right? Um, an open letter to the golf industry from a black man who loves the game. From a black man that loves the game. Um, and you published it in the golf WRX uh, on their website. Uh, you post, I, I saw at the time you posted, that's where I, I caught wind of it was when you posted to your social media. Um, and then you had a conversation uh, with Damon Hack on your show kind of about just kind of the, the everything going on and, and kind of the, yeah. the, the temperature of the country and, and, and the golf industry. Um, but I'd like to talk a little bit of, uh, about the letter because in, in that letter, um, you know, you, you call out the, the golf industry, but, uh, but in particular, the, the, the PGA Tour uh, pretty specifically about almost, almost like kind of not being prepared for with a better response at the time or being prepared mm. to kind of deal with some of these issues. Um, and then fast forward a couple months later, Jay, Jay Monahan, um, sat down with you, um, um, face to face or I don't know face to face, but came, came on your show and kind of talked through it. So I, I kind of want to hear your perspective on, um, you know, the, on the letter, what drove you to, 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 to put it, the reaction from the industry or lack thereof. Um, I'd love to just hear more about it. Well, the impetus was obviously the murder of George Floyd and, um, uh, that, I mean, a show who, who didn't that touch or touch me, you know, specifically because literally there, but for the grace of God, that could have been, could have been my son. Um, so everybody was thinking about that. And of course, I'm thinking about it in my political context with the political work. And uh, the thing that uh, provoked me to write the letter specifically about golf was Jay Monahan's letter, his statement saying that, you know, we, I don't want to try to quote it, but it alluded to the fact that they were searching for the right answers or searching for the right thing to do. Yeah. And that sort of tweaked me because I thought, well, look, I've been in the industry and I've sat down with a bunch of people who are responsible for this. And I know that people have been looking for the right thing to do, or at least saying that they're sitting down at meetings and looking for the right thing to do for a long, long, long time. So there should be, to me, a binder that says, in case of racial emergency, great glass. There, there should be something like that sitting out there, or at least some sort of response to this to say, here's what we are doing. And his, his, his bafflement baffled me. And that's why I wanted to, to write the article to say, well, here's, here's what I think. Here's what I think the issues are, at least some of the issues are. Even more importantly, to try to put together some solutions. Because uh, one of the guys I worked with, a good friend of mine, Chad Hart, was a PR guy in, um, in, in, in Los Angeles, a really great guy. And he, he read my first draft of the letter and says, Michael, you know, you need to put down the solutions too. You can't just write down the problems. You got you to flow with the solutions too. And I said, so yeah, you're absolutely right. So the, the, the letter is a combination of first expressing my gratitude and wonderment still at the position that I hold in the golf industry after such a short, short period of time. It's been amazing. Uh, then to say that that hasn't been the case for everyone, obviously. 
and that uh, golf has somewhat of a checkered past when it comes to race and diversity. Here's what I see. Here's some things that can be done, just low hanging fruit. And it's interesting, one of the things I said was to recognize people of color for their lifetime accomplishment. Why isn't um, Calvin Keith uh, in the Hall of Fame? He's the straightest hitter in the history of golf. You talk about starting late. That guy started playing golf in his 20s, in his early 20s. By his late 20s, he wins the Tour Championship. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And now you have Lee Elder, who's been invited to hit the first ball, but he's still not in the Hall of Fame, the World Golf Hall of Fame. He needs to be in there. So things like this. Uh, and promoting HBCU golf is one of the things we, we, we talked about. And, you know, Jay Monahan saw it. Um, I had the response from every lettered organization in the industry ha has been in touch with me. And I mean, NGCOA, PGA of America, PGA Tour, USGA. The only people I haven't heard from is the RNA. And I get that because it's not on our shores. And I expect that I will be talking to them at some point. But um, they have all been responsive. And I think that the leadership of these organizations, their heart is in the right place. And it's, it's difficult when you have to bring a, a I want to say, a culture that has an old world ethos part and parcel into the 21st century. Parts of this game are still in the, haven't made it to the 20th century. Let's, yeah. let's be honest. Sure. Okay? But but Jay was honest and, and, and recognized that and sat down with me, as you said, and talked about it. And, you know, to his credit, when he's, he gave me his, like, his personal email and phone number. He said, look, you got a thought, call me first. Okay, I want to hear from you first. And he will. Um, I heard that from a lot of the leadership, Susie Whaley and Seth Watt, the PGA, um, from all the guys, John Bodenhammer and all the guys over at the, PG, at the USGA. They all... I mean, they, they've all been very responsive and very receptive. And um, I look forward to working with them on this thing because it, it's not a moment, it's yeah. a movement. We have to keep this going forward. Sure, that, that was going to be my next question. You know, that, that, that's fantastic that they've all reached out and that they're, um, you, you've gotten that response. I'm just kind of curious with oftentimes when there's these, these type of large events and movements, you know, once it kind of drifts away from the front page, people, you know, people forget about it and, now that we are, let's see, May, we're now in November, six months down the road, you know, is, is, is it still being talked about? Are, are, have there been, you had that conversation with uh, the commissioner in what, August or September or something like that? Um, yeah. are, have you started, have you seen any indicators since that says, okay, things are actually happening and there's not just words? Yeah, there, there are things that are happening. Um, I think the, maybe the most significant and easy to understand is the announcement by the PGA Tour, tour that they're committing $100 million in philanthropic um, uh, funds to organizations that promote uh, diversity and the betterment of circumstances for people of color in the neighborhoods where they hold tournaments across the country. So it's not just about, hey, let's do another first tee or let's get, you know, where black kids playing <laughs> golf. You know, that's been done. Let's have, let's see if we can get um, uh, better health facilities, if we can get bookmobiles, if we can sort of bring equity you know, to the situation for more people, because once you don't have to think about where your next meal is coming from, maybe you can start to worry about making it tea time, you know, yeah. to their credit. They understand that one comes before the other. Sure. Um, but there, there are other things that are happening. And I think as, as things come together and there are meaningful announcements to make, you'll hear more, yeah. but they're work. People are working on it. Um, one of, one of the things, um, you know, you would ask Damon Hack in that that interview or that discussion that you had with him immediately after, and you asked Jay Monahan um, about Tiger specifically um, and kind of his role 
And, and it, you know, uh, the commissioner's response was interesting, basically saying, you know, he, he does a tremendous amount that people don't see. Um, and, and it was almost like he was saying, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really need to say anything because of how much he does. Um, um, that, 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 that's just not on the front pages and it's not, doesn't make, doesn't make headlines and, and, and isn't necessarily quotable. Um, is that an, is that enough from Tiger being the, the stature that, that he has and the role that and the impact that he could have? Um, look, I mean, again, you see the picture on the wall I have back here, you know, there's this guy, I grew up with guys like this and Bill Russell and, you know, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith and Jim Brown. Now, these are athletes who used their platform to advance others. That, that was just their sensibility. That was their, that was in their moral makeup. Um, Tiger's in another generation. Um, and I don't think it's, it's not necessarily in him to be that particular guy to approach a situation and uh, provoke change through conflict and confrontation. That's not who he is. It's never going to be who he is. But, you know, he's a grown-ass man. He can do whatever he wants to. And what you can do is point out to him, hey, look, keep, there's your opportunity. There, there is an opportunity for you to do this through your words and your actions. You choose what you decide to do. And he's chosen to do it quietly through certain things. And, um, again, you, know, you get a guy like Kirk Triplett. just wrote a story about Kirk Triplett, who puts a Black Lives Matter sticker on his bag and gets, you know, all kinds of, of vile you know, vitriol is hurled at him you know, on the internet and in person, because the guy has a black son, he adopted a black kid. He said, Hey, black lives actually do matter. Yeah. And he gets all, all this, this understanding. So I understand that there's a price to be paid, you know, in that golf community for that sort of, you know, what passes for activism, you know, in that, sure. in that community, just saying and doing the right thing is, is categorized as activism. That's not who he is. Okay. But yeah. we don't need him to be that, but somebody has to be, somebody has to step forward and say that me, I got into the game late. I've, if, you know, the whole industry, you know, sort of says, you know, we're done with you, Michael. Okay, so be it. If they do that for me telling the truth, I'm fine. I can live with that because the one thing I can't live with is hypocrisy. Ask anybody who knows me. That's my battle. Okay. That's my Don Quixote thing. I, I don't truck uh, uh, hypocrisy. Not my thing. Um, so almost speaking, not speaking of Tiger, but in, in that letter, you also brought up um, a story in your open letter to golf about, um, some another a PGA Tour player telling a story um, at the U.S. Open in Pebble Beach, um, yeah. who I learned later when you when you wrote an article about it and your relationship with him that it was Charles Howell, um, but a, about um, you know him donning blackface as a joke the night that Tiger got in trouble with with Ellen, um, yeah. and he told this in front of a, a large room of, of media and, and reporters where you were the only African American in the room and and you confronted him on it. Um, but, over, but, but it, it, he's turned that into a, a learning experience. It sounds like, and, and you have a relationship with him now. Can you tell us a little I bit? I do. And, and to just roll it back, I mentioned that, yes, in the letter, uh, that I wrote, I mentioned that story. And it's interesting because when I talked to the PGA tour, um, one of the first questions they asked me was, are you comfortable in sharing the name of that professional? And I wasn't at the time because I knew I was still in the process of determining how this story was going to come out. Um, the story was at the 2019 U.S. Open. I was invited there, and um, they have players for one of the sponsors. Uh, the, the players come in post round and do a, uh, you know, sort of a post round interview, that sort of thing. You know, player interviews are generally pretty boring <laughs> stuff. But you know, I thought, okay, you're invited, you go, be polite, show up. Um, and it wasn't a room of reporters. Uh, 
almost miraculously, I was the only member of the accredited media who was there. Um, the rest of it was sort of uh, um, customers and uh, uh, people who were in the orbit of that particular sponsor. Oh, okay. And uh, again, uh, Todd Lewis, who was doing thing for the Golf Channel, sort of teed up this story for Charles saying, hey, everybody, remember the night that Tiger ran his uh, SUV into the fire hydrant? Uh, yeah, we do. Why are we talking about it now? Um, and he teed up the story. Well, Charles had a funny story about living in Isleworth at the same time. And um, Charles went on to tell the story about how you know, there were lots of media there. And uh, his, he thought it would be funny to go in the house. And his quote was to put on as much shoe polish and other dark stuff as I can find and a wig. And he got a blind to sit beside him in a different SUV and went rolling around trying to uh, convince the uh, media that he was Tiger. And this got nervous laughter from the room. I was sitting about 15 feet from him. And it was either I go to the back of the room or I'm going to leap at him. You know, I mean, it was that type of visceral anger. I couldn't believe it because this was at the time when the governor of Virginia was about to have to resign for a, a blackface picture they found with him like 25 years before. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, anyway, so the, the story is that Charles uh, gave a... Um, a cursory apology there, you know, I'm sorry if you were offended. And I think he truly was mystified that I was offended because they'd asked him some, somewhat for a funny story. And I think he was sort of prompted to tell this story somehow. But the way the way you tell it, it's as if like it, it never occurred to him that there might might have been something wrong with it. No. And I think you can be in a room, you could he it would have been like water into sand had I not been in the room. There was nervous laughter in the room, which made me as angry as his statement were the people who laughed at that thing. Um, so in the room, I said, you know, I wanted to wait. I didn't want to blow it up because I was conflicted. I'm thinking, okay, I'm not here as media. I'm actually a guest in this thing, but I'm still media. And I'm also still, you know, I'm a man living in this world. You know, what do you say about something like that? You don't just let that go. Um, so I tried to wait until everybody had their questions answered. You know, the guests wanted to ask him stuff about his career and that sort of thing. And he took the last question and I said, hey, you know, I just want to say Charles number one, I admire your career, think you've done a great job. You know, 20 years, $40 million, that's a-okay, right? But don't you ever tell that story again, okay? Don't you ever do it. It's ignorant, it's embarrassing. And in two minutes, you could blow everything you've worked for, not only for the 20 years of your career, but for your entire life, okay? Do yourself a favor, don't do that. And again, he was truly puzzled. I, I, they just asked me for a funny story. So. It was that thing, and I, I talked to people at the sponsor, at the USGA, that sort of thing. And I, the the thing for me was, am I going to tell this story now, in the middle of the U.S. Open, you know, the tournament that I love? I love the USGA. I love the idea, and the 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 USGA. I mean, think about it. The U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, and Pebble Beach is celebrating their hundredth anniversary, you know, of being open. It was as big of a golf event as you're going to get, you know, right. that in the Masters. Yeah. Do I blow that up? to tell this story. I don't want to do it. However, if I do blow up the story, I take this to TMZ, I get $10,000 and 10,000 followers, you know, overnight. So, you know, you got the angels on the shoulder trying to, what I decided to do was to say, look, I don't think necessarily that this moment made this man. I'm not sure that that's exactly who he is. So I want to give it time because he did apologize. And um, a number of people apologized. And I took it to be a sign that, look, let's see if we can establish who he is. I don't want to take away from the story for anybody who wants to read it, but he went through a personal hell. Once he understood that he had done something wrong, it took a lot of help and a lot of counseling 
to get only not only the guilt, but actually some depression to be imagine seeing a character flaw like that in yourself and you have no idea that it exists. It would knock you for a loop too. But he came out of it to be a person who's an advocate for diversity, for equity, for fairness. He's a very, very um, genuine person. You know, he's a he's a Christian man. He's a man of faith. Um, and I think he learned that you can do something wrong, recognize that and come back from it. And that's the story that I wanted to tell. You know, in I always say in, in golf, you call it a mulligan. You know, and in church, you call it grace. But whichever you want to call it, at some point, we all need another chance. And if you have the patience to be able to do it and it comes out that you do, that it's worth that redemption, that opportunity for redemption. Well, those are the stories that take us forward. Those are those things that tie us together because yeah. it's easy to tell a story that, 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 that breaks us apart. Uh, that's, that's really, really well said. And I, I certainly encourage um, everyone to, to go read that, that article that you put up. It, it's, it's on golf WRX. I'll, I'll, I'll share it as well. Um, and well, that story is on the undefeated. That story is on the undefeated. Oh, the undefeated. Okay. Undefeated. Okay. You're right. Yeah. Okay. The undefeated. We'll, we'll share that link out. Um, but also, um, you know, good, good on you for, for making that decision of, of not, you know, picking up the phone and, and calling TMZ or, or whoever else to, to just kind of get him in trouble and, and, and go the route that you, that you took. Um, so an- another thing I want to put on you, you in, in, in the conversation with Damon Hack, um, you brought up an organization that you've already mentioned a couple times here, which is, which is the first T, um, which um, I thought was interesting. You didn't elaborate on it. Um, and I saw on your profile that, that you spent some time with the first T, not, not a long period of time, but you spent some time with the first T. Um, but the first T, I've never really heard anything. I don't, I don't know a ton about the first T. I don't, I, I, admittedly, I, I volunteered one, one season with them, helping out with some kids down at, down at Fort Belvoir. You know, I follow them on sure. social media. I know they're, 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 I know what they are. Um, so it was interesting to hear you just, you kind of had, had, have, you know, some, some strong feelings about the first tee and you didn't elaborate there. So I'm, I'm just curious if you could elaborate a little bit here about your experience on, on how you feel they've changed. Um, well, the, the first, uh, experience that I had with first tee was again, working at the uh, golf courses, um, in, in DC because we were the, uh, we sort of domiciled the first tee at that time. We gave them, uh, space for the kids programs we donated buckets of balls you know instruction um eventually we donated office space you know in one of the clubhouses where they could live and actually work the the, the offices there so um the, the the original mission of the first tee was to bring golf to underserved communities that was the the, the original mission and uh, I, I think that they did some really good work in that area across the country and it's a chapter-based organization so different chapters, you know, any, any type of organization like that, they have different flavors, different, um, I know they put emphasis on different things, you know, if you will. They each have um, their own leadership, right? Exactly. They actually, and you know, they, they, they have go their charter they need to fulfill and certain um, national benchmarks that they have to, uh, they, they have to be, but it, does, that, does that result in some, some chapters being more revenue driven than others? I would say, well, more revenue driven. Yes. And sometimes because they have the ability to be so. I mean, when you're living in Washington, D.C., it's one of the wealthiest communities in the area. And you have a lot of people who are on your board um, that it's it's, it's really a very, um, you know, it's a it's a blue ribbon type of board. A lot of people who are lobbyists and lawyers and very successful people in life. I think uh, Kornheiser and Wilbon were on the board at some time uh, when I was on there. Um, 
it's um and so they have the ability to hold fundraisers and things like that and do and do things so they do it i mean it's in their dna that's what they do um uh, it, it didn't work that well from the very beginning but once they got a really good leadership group in there it sort of kicked it in the high gear and it's um it's you know that sort of washington social thing you know became becomes sure. a part of it but you know that's not going to be the same thing in newark new jersey right you know that's not going to be the same thing in jackson mississippi Right. You know, necessarily. So they can have the same mission, but not have the same uh, resources, let's say, to do things, to do things in a different way. Um, I thought the organization was doing very well, and I think they've raised a lot of money, and they consolidated. They used to be uh, first tee of Washington, D.C., which I was on the board of, the first tee of Montgomery County and Prince George's County. There's been a consolidation of the first tees. Now it's the first tee of Greater Washington. I'm not sure how far that re reaches now, but uh, it probably you know, like the metro area, you know, sort of halfway down to Richmond, you know, it's considered the D.C. area now, right? right. Um, so it, it's a very big chapter that has a very big endowment because they've raised a lot of money. My issue, I've, I've left the board recently because I saw a change in the mission of the organization. I saw a, a, um, a, a practical change in that it seemed to be moving for more from getting underserved communities into the game of golf to just getting kids in the game of golf. Let's be like the, the funnel, the feeder system for young people into the game of golf so that golf doesn't become tennis, you know, after the seventies where everybody's playing and then all of a sudden nobody's playing. Right. So that, that, that mission sort of changed and morphed. Um, I, I, I left, we sort of parted ways mutually when uh, that mission became official, when it was just, okay, this is, this program is now about junior golf. It's about putting more golfers, you know, on golf courses. And I said, well, that's a noble mission, but that's not what I signed up for. And I admit, you know, with my travel, my schedule, I wasn't the most, I wasn't super involved in programming or anything like that anyway. I wasn't, but. But that, that shift know, happened just for the, the first year of the greater Washington or, or all the chapters? Nationally, nationally. Nationally, okay. Nationally, nationally. Nationally, the organization And and, and, fair, and fairly recently? Yes, I did, uh, within the last two years. Okay. Within the last two years. And, you know, when I, when I mentioned that in that letter, you know, a lot of people from uh, chapters, in uh, across the country, I mean, from Detroit and um, Los Angeles, I got a lot of uh, correspondence from people say, hey, were you talking about us? Because we still do this. We still, you know, have this mission, you know, for getting these kids and other kids, other chapters that would say, look, we just did it because we had, there was no other way for us to get sponsorship and to do events. You know, we have to, you know, raise money. We're a 501c3. How else can we get there? So people have their different challenges. I get it. I get it. I get it. Um, I just felt that it was a different mission and right. that the first mission isn't done yet. Okay. We still haven't done that. We haven't accounted for the fact that an NBA basketball guy, we had the NBA draft the other day, right? And that kid was standing up there in an ill-fitting suit and a baseball hat and a basketball, right? And that basketball could have been the one that he got when he was 10 years old for Christmas. He's had it ever since. For somebody to be standing on the podium at uh, the U.S. Open, okay, that's not going to happen. He's not going to be standing there with the clubs that he got when he was 10 years old. Okay, it takes a lot of money, a lot of resources. It takes probably fifty dollars to $100,000 just worth of range balls to get them to be in the, the discussion about somebody who could possibly win uh, on the PGA Tour. So somebody has to foot the bill for that. Someone, something has to be accounted for the fact that in a sport that is talking about equity and, and, and involvement and anybody can do this, it's, there's, it, it has, there has to be equity of opportunity to right. get to it. You know, and that really doesn't exist. So I think that's something that still needs to be addressed, and that's something that I'm interested in doing somehow. Interesting. We we had a gentleman. Are, are you uh, are you familiar with with Craig Kirby? 
and golf. I certainly am. Yeah. Yes. We, I had I had him on the show a while back, and and it sounds like he's he's trying to do something more aligned with their original their original mission with with golf, my future, my game. So yeah. hopefully, um, and I know he's working with National Links Trust, and and hopefully his organization exactly. it's, a, it's a good one to. Uh, for anybody anybody listening, good one to to try to try to support, and and hopefully there's more organizations um, yeah, like that will will pop up, and and um, but that that's that's interesting. That, that was just the first time I'd really ha- kind of heard anybody take quite a, quite a hot take like that on the first tee. So I, I, I kind of raised raised some eyebrows, and I'm sure it ruffled some feathers, as you said, across the country within first tee. A little bit. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Um, so be, before we wrap here, on a lighter note, before we wrap up, um, I, I, I really enjoyed a, a recent conversation that you had when, when you got to uh, um, head out into the Atlantic Ocean to Bermuda and uh, attend the Bermuda Classic and um, sit down with uh, a, a, another local golf uh, hero, Fred Funk, um, yeah. after he made the cut at the Bermuda Classic. Yeah. And so that, that I encourage everybody to, to go listen to that interview. That was, that was it was great to hear you and Fred uh, kind of rap about his career and, and him getting to play with his son. Um, yeah. So that 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 was really cool. Was that the first time you had kind of sat down with him for for that kind of time? Yeah, that was a, uh, yes for that type of time in, in an official way. Yeah, it was the first time. Um, he was so forthcoming about it, and I love the way he sort of managed the conversation through talking about that experience at the golf course and then talking about his equipment and what he uses and how his physical challenges were there. He didn't even feel like he was going to compete that, that, that week. I, I saw him on the airplane. I saw him in the, in the, uh, in the hotel and I thought he had a certain glow. I thought he had a certain bounce to his step, but it turns out that that bounce was because he was in so much freaking pain. <laughs> he was just sort of like walking, he was walking gingerly, you know, the guy was in total pain and didn't think he was really even going to, uh, you know, wasn't sure he was going to be able to get out there for the first round. He ends up making the cut. And that's, you know, that, that's golf, isn't it? And, uh, and Freddie is just um, someone who's just performed year after year after year. He's, he, he has that dedication. You know, he's the proverbial grinder. Um, whatever it takes to get it done, you know, with his body, with his equipment, mentally there. Um, I, I just love talking to him. And um, it, it, he's just a great guy, super nice guy. Just, uh, you know, some people you have to pull an interview out of. You know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. 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 Like, but but he, he, he's, like, not, he's not one of those people. No, no. Um, I mean, he's somewhere, he's somewhere between Dustin Johnson, who I still, my, my greatest journalism accomplishment is getting that guy to laugh into a microphone. Okay. He actually showed emotion. Okay. Um, which at the master was lovely to see him cry like that. It was awesome. I call it the greatest speech never given. But uh, had to make him laugh. between DJ and Gary Player, it was like Gary, how you doing? And then you got forty five minutes. How did you make DJ laugh? I asked him. Uh, what did I ask him? He was at the uh, the TaylorMade session. I was interviewing him on the phone and asked the typical questions. And he was giving DJ answers, um, someplace between one and three words. And then I asked him, hey, DJ, um, you baseball fans? Yeah, I am. You know, they got walk-on music, right? Yeah. What's your walk-on music, man? If you play walk-on music for your, for your next, for your next mm-hmm. uh, tournament, what's your walk-on music? And he gave a big laugh at that. He says, let me think about that. And I, I can't remember which songs he were. It was like, and there were two like really different things. One of them was like a, a, a deep rap song, and the other one was sort of like, uh, you know, screech metal. It's like, okay, I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I wouldn't have pegged him for that. I, 
who wouldn't know anything yeah, about right, it. Right, right. But I tell you what, two things about that guy. He is super nice, as talented as the day is long, and Paulina Gretzky looks better in person. This is what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so aim high, kids. <laughs> aim high. <laughs> so he's got he's got a lot going for him right now. Yes, um, he does. Um, all right. So uh, th- listen, this has been great. Uh, la- last last thing. So you you live now in in Montgomery County in Silver Spring. Where you uh, you play, you still play much golf in the area? Uh, I I do. You know, my favorite courses to play are either to sneak right over to uh, Sligo, a little nine holer, just right up the street from me. Or uh, Northwest Park is up in Silver Spring, sort of just north of here, yeah. like five miles. And I believe that's still from the tips, the longest public course in, um, uh, in Montgomery County, maybe the state. But it's, it's super long, a great test. They keep it in great shape for the number of rounds that they get. Yeah. I'm not a country club kind of guy. Right. I play plenty in a normal year. I play plenty of golf traveling. Um, but there hasn't been much this year, partially because obviously of COVID-19. Also because I tweaked the meniscus here and I need to get a saw bones in there to clean that up. So um, once that once that gets done, I'll, I'll, I'll be back and you know, flirting with the championship. All right. Well, we'll, we'll leave it at there. Um, I, I really appreciate you, you letting me ping you with questions. But it was great to learn more about your back, your, your backstory and your history. And so thank you, Michael, for your time. And it's been a pleasure. Hey, it's my pleasure, man. Next time, once we get rid of this bug, man, we'll do this in person, no? Absolutely. Look forward to it. I don't have a good golf game, but I don't really care. I'm a, I'm a regular dude living in D.C., and I want to know about D.C.-centric golf stuff. If you can tell me something that I don't already know, then that is great for me. I don't want the regular stuff. I want exciting stuff. I want different stuff. I want stuff I can't hear elsewhere. But I want it to be about DC golf.